Hello everyone, my name is Joshua Gilliland, attorney blogger on Bowtie Law and with Jessica Meterson on The Legal Geeks. Today we have a special podcast to talk about Grainville T. Woods, inventor, with the very talented writer uh, Madeline Holly Rosing of the Boston Metaphysical Society. Madeline, how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing, Josh? Fantastic. Enjoying lovely California weather, indicative of a drought. But other than that, life's good. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, for those who haven't tuned in before, uh, I met Madeline at the Big Wow Comic Convention in May 2013. Had a fabulous time. Really enjoyed the comic, which is uh, part of a six-part series. Uh, we were at the Geeky Awards together, and really looking forward to, to that as well. And and the completion of BMS. That's right. So let's talk about Mr. Woods. And I've, again, being a history geek, I really applaud what you've researched and the lawsuits he was involved in. But could you tell everyone who he was and where he was from? Granville Woods, who is one of the main characters in the comic, is from originally from Ohio. He is an African-American inventor who invented, well, actually, he patented over 50 patents and um, uh, is, in some circles, is referred to as the Black Edison, which is, uh, I actually take exception to that. I think he's probably better than Edison, <laughs> since Thomas Edison, he actually had to sue Thomas Edison a couple of times for stealing some of his patents, and Edison's response after losing was to offer him a job, which he refused, and started his own company, which is as he should have. Yeah. Edison was delightful as a human being that way. <laughs> uh, it, it's unfortunate that he's been kind of lost to history because he is. He lived in the same time period as Edison and Tesla and Bell, and in fact, he sold some of his patents to the Bell Company, that that he should be lost. And I've had the greatest time sort of like discovering him and reintroducing him to the world that this man existed because a lot of people who read the comic think that he's a fictional character. And I say, no, he's not. And the reason I chose him is, well, there's a lot of reasons. One, I didn't want a Lily White comic. I wanted a comic that was American, and in order to have an American comment, comic and an American story, it has to reflect the American experience, and that doesn't happen without women and people of color. It just doesn't. It's, it's not part of our lives. And also, it allows, as a, a writer and a storyteller, to have organic, organic what's known as organic conflict arise from racial tensions, class tensions that add to the story and to depth of character. So there were many reasons I wanted to bring him in. And just the fact that I found him, I just kind of went like, yes, when he was, he was a perfect fit for the world I had developed. And uh, considering how smart he was and he was well-traveled, uh, well-educated, self-educated, as I, I believe, uh, though some people say he went to night school. As you and I discussed earlier, 
we doubt that happened. <laughs> but uh, he did learn, and he learned well, and uh, was very important for the telegraph and railroad industry in this country. Yeah, there are some parts of history that we would only learn through a seance or ourselves dying to find out, and I'm, I'm not willing to do the second one uh, for, for at least another 60 to 70 years, and I, I can wait. And uh, seance could be a little weird and uh, results not... not yeah, un unreliable. Yeah, yeah. We, we can't go through a Dalbert test to see if it was actually repeatable and truthful and everything. Um, so there's that. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm a history geek. When I was at UC Davis, I took nine upper division history classes, pretty much focused at all of American history and specifically the 19th century. And I don't remember him being mentioned in the post-bellum period. And if he was, it was a footnote, and I glanced over it. So it's, I've enjoyed seeing the fictional version of him, which has inspired both legal research, uh, looking at patent cases from the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, and you know, also on the you know, USPTO website, digging through, looking for information on the multiplex telegraph and why it was important and the other material that he put together, so which is just fascinating. Yeah, now, let's talk about uh, what we do know about him, or at least what we think we know and what could be in conflict, but what was his, uh, you know, so he's born in the mid-19th century. Yes. He then is educated, probably self-taught. What does he invent during the course of his life? Uh, well, one of the things was an apparatus called, a, he called it a tele, I'm not even sure how you pronounce this, telegraphony, telegraphony, uh, which was a combination of a telephone and a telegraph. Uh, this was patented in 1885, and this would allow a telegraph station to send a voice, voice and telegraph message over a single wire. Which would have been um, great for trains. So they yes. know what was happening and, and everything. Because uh, a lot of people, even though Amtrak is alive today, <laughs> uh, it's a great way to travel if you want to be able to actually see the country and enjoy it. But, you know, this is pre-airplane. and Yes. He actually sold that, the rights to that, to uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell's company, the American Bell Telephone Company. Uh, and then later on, he patented... The synchronous multiplex railway telegraph. That's um, that's a mouthful, but this was really important because this allowed communications between train stations and moving trains. So essentially, it made it possible for moving trains to to, to communicate not only to other moving trains but to the stations, so everybody knew where they were at the same time and wouldn't collide. Pretty important. <laughs> Huge, huge. I mean, there was one of the cases that I found, I actually only found one on Lexus referencing his name, and that was the Bullock Electric Manufacturing Company, the uh, Crocker Wheeling Company, which was from uh, New Jersey. And for uh, all, all the other legal geeks out there, that was 141F105, uh, date September 19th, 1905. And, and that got into... Uh, a whole bunch of deep patent issues. I mean, it's fascinating reading cases from the, this time period because 
one, patents are always confusing. I mean, like there's, we have a special practice for attorneys who do patent law. So you have that half of it and you have guys who get, and gals who get electrical engineering degrees or bioscience degrees so they can do patent law in a particular area. And then there's the language of the time as well to confound it. So, yes. so it's a complicated read just looking at some of these old cases. And then when you throw in, you know, early 20th century science on top of it, it's, it's a little funky. Yeah. I, I know that the, um, a lot of these cases have been documented and they are online, but I can imagine that not all of them are. So there's, I'm amazed that you were actually able to find one that mentioned him. And that was pretty much not even really about him so much as about the two other uh, litigants. Yeah. Cause he assigned the right. So he, you know, he had to pay bills somehow. So he invented yeah. things and sold it, which is kind of what inventors frequently do unless you want to die holding your property rights starving, but that's, that's just life. Uh, but it's, it's, it was a fascinating read and, you know, looking for his name on the USPTO site was also a challenge in part because of time, mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, the, the, they do a pretty good job on the website going back that far. Uh, but looking at the multiplex telegraph and doing a Boolean search for that on the USPTO site, I was able to find stuff back into the twenties, but he died in 1910. Yes. So, uh, I mean, like, we are digging deep for some of this, you know, and it, there's a lot of history and the technology that isn't quite as used just because times are different. Yeah, I imagine you'd have to go dig around in the archives of the court clerk's office, both in Ohio and New York, to find the, the documentation that, you know, you would probably love to take a look at and find out exactly what went on, say, between him and Edison? I have a buddy who, work, who is, uh, works for the National Archives. He's actually, you know, excuse me, he's actually in the uh, Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. He might actually be able to have some tips on this. Oh, yeah. Um, I might give him a call and go, hey, because uh, he's, he's good at finding this. I, I did make a mistake of when I first met joking about whether the Library of Congress has a library card, and I had a 10-minute lecture on why not. So I, <laughs> I did not have a sense of humor about that. But uh, yeah. Don't ask that question again. No, I learned. I learned a lot. Um, that was 2002. Never again. Never again. Well, let's, let's talk about what else, uh, what other contributions did you find from him uh, to the country? Um, I know... Uh, I, it was it was actually pretty hard to find anything else. I'm sure it was there, but most people were, the information that I got, they were just highlighting on the, the major points of his life. And, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't find a list of the 50 patents that, that he had, he had put together. Um, but I know that, he, you know, just from the fact that Edison was almost stalking him, that the man was smart and he had things that Edison wanted, uh, which means the rest of the world would want it too. So how much of that history uh, has that shaped your writing of both uh, Woods and Edison and BMS? Whenever I use 
a real life character. I don't feel beholden to absolutely every factual data because you it's drama and you have to have a story. But what I do do is try to retain the theme of who they are, the conflicts that they had, particularly with other people. And, and I was very pleased with the fact that he already had these conflicts with Edison. He knew Bell. Uh, clearly, Bell looked on him, uh, at least, I don't know, fondly, who knows, but appreciatively, since he bought things from him. Uh, so I was able to bring all of that. Uh, the animosity between Edison and Granville is in the story. Uh, Tesla essentially thinks he's above everybody else. Um, I do write Tesla very differently than at this point in time in the story than how history views him. That doesn't mean in later series it doesn't get closer to actual fact. Yeah, because Tesla really did get screwed by history uh, with with the fight with Edison and power. And, you know, if we had gone with Tesla's model of power, I mean, God, the 20th century would have been very different looking. Yes, most definitely. But, but with Granville, I mean, one accounts even said that he would tell people that he was Australian because he felt that he got more respect if people thought he was Australian as opposed to an African-American. And how sad is that? I mean, that's, that's very sad. But a testament to the time, oh, unfortunately. Golly, yeah. I mean, there, there's plenty of those stories. You know, my, uh, yeah, just plenty of those very unfortunate stories from American history. So. But he's... Uh, like I said before, I'm, I'm so thrilled to bring him out of obscurity. And particularly since he's such an American story. I mean, he came from, you know, lower middle class family. Had, he had a basic education, uh, got a job at like 10 years old at a mechanics, mechanics and blacksmith, uh, machinist, I'm sorry, machinist and blacksmith uh, shop. And literally, you know, picked him up himself up by his bootstraps, educated himself into a job, into his own job. I mean, he created his own job. He was an entrepreneur. He's the very definition of an American, and yet he's ignored, or for, I should say, just forgotten. And since, uh, no offense to you, but since white males usually write the history books, they tend to forget women and people of color, particularly in the past. It depends who's writing, and there are, right. always, there are always those who have defended the rights of man and the rights of everyone throughout U.S. Absolutely. History. Absolutely. You only have to look at crazy Joshua Giddings, who was, you know, uh, congressman from Ohio and when Lincoln served one term in Congress, they were roommates at the boarding house stayed mm -hmm. with John Quincy Adams uh, during his congressional tenure. And Giddings was the crazy guy arguing not just for emancipation and, you know, and the rights of, of African Americans and former slaves, but that women's suffrage as well. I mean, very, very forward thinking. And, you know, it's, it's a damn shame it took 50 years you know, to get amendments passed for women to vote post-Civil War. 
and the way that the postbellum period you know, was just plagued by that. And you had you know, new states and the western states you know, giving women suffrage long before you know, the, you know, the uh, uh, amendments passed in 19, for the 1920 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, it's, there's, there's a lot there. So while, I, while it is noted, there have been plenty of <laughs> people who have fought for everyone. There's always exceptions. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's Abigail Adams at a point when she told John Adams, don't forget the women. And I, I really do believe John Adams thought long and hard about that. But they, uh, uh, part of the American experience is, is the promise that we have. And there have been many stumbling points, many lost opportunities uh, and, and that's always painful. You know, I really do believe that Lincoln died at exactly the wrong time uh, because the initial plan for Reconstruction, Congress felt it didn't go far enough because Louisiana wanted back in first, and mm-hmm. Lincoln was going to give them very, very favorable terms, and, we, and Congress said, no, we, we, we can't do that. And eventually the one that would be first would be Tennessee and during Reconstruction. But Lincoln wasn't going to announce the plan uh, that he was that he had come up with until April 17th or 18th. And getting shot on Good Friday on April 14th and dying that Saturday morning uh, derailed things. Because when Johnson took over, Congress was out of session. And the South had been totally defeated. They would have taken any terms. We could have done 40 acres and a mule. We could have really set the, you know, the country on the right course. And nothing happens. And it's like we didn't even fight the war because Southern life remained the same for months. And when Congress resumed session and the former traitors send Confederate officers in uniform to take their seats in Congress... Congress freaks out and refuses to seat them. And that's what eventually will lead to the Radical Reconstruction Congress and, and uh, the in, in attempted impeachment trial of, of Johnson. And, and again, just blown opportunities. If Lincoln had not died, I think we would have had a radically different history that would have been better for the country racially and probably, I mean, this, this is the unknown part, but hopefully would have uh, had women voting rights much sooner as opposed to much later. Yeah, unfortunately, we'll never know. No, no, we won't. And But it's just, I mean, what one crazed actor bent on revenge could do and derailing the future. Uh, just, just horrible. Uh, but I think we should focus on the positive. You know, I look at, I um, mean, we should learn from history, but you know, I'm very proud of the fact that my great-grandfather was college roommates with uh, George Washington Carver. Mm-hmm. And they were then buddies with a future vice president of the United States, Hopkins. And so you had all these Iowans running around, and uh, eventually Washington, uh, you know, Carver lived with Hopkins because of racism that they felt with on the, the student campus. But great-grandpa was buddies with a vice, future vice president and, and Mr. Peanut Butter. So, I mean, there's plenty of good. Uh, he needs to write a book. Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, great-grandpa's gone, but I, I have an audio tape 
with them that uh, I need to digitize because yeah, I mean, just you should. Oh yeah, the quiet Norwegian, you know, who lived to one hundred and three. Wow. Yeah, and uh, you know, I have his diary from the last couple of years of his life, and it's it's a fascinating read uh, to see what a you know a guy who was a century old was writing about uh, in the twilight years. But you know, there there's always the you know, I look at at Woods, uh, and and you know, it's it's great what you've done with him uh, in making people know he existed. Uh, but you know, there's plenty of promise as opposed to not just focusing on the mistakes. Yeah, he also had a brother, okay, which we talked about earlier, but um, who was also an inventor. But for the life of me, I could not find anything named that he had actually invented. Uh, I searched and searched and searched. Uh, there might be something buried away in some court clerk's office somewhere or some old patent office somewhere disintegrating. <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, his, his whole family was clearly gifted, gifted engineers. And it was unclear if he was actually married or not, uh, and whether he had children. Some people say he did, some say he didn't. Um, I tend to think he didn't just because he wouldn't have had the time or be able to financially support them. But, but it's hard to say unless we magically go back in time and, and actually see them. Uh, one thing we do know, apparently he was a really snappy dresser. And he probably would have loved your bow ties. <laughs> it's rock on. Oh, the pictures I've seen of him. He's, he's a handsome man. You know, it's yeah. like, rock on, dude. Rock on. <laughs> so yeah, quite, the, quite the gentleman. And you, you, know, you guys have tried capturing that in the comic as well. In addition to the goggles on top of the head. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's uh, Samuel's tech guy, though he does get out in the field, which you saw in the, um, well, you've seen in both the, uh, issues two and three. Uh -huh. He does work out in the field. He's not always in the shadows, just building stuff. He gets out there, too. Uh, but, though, as we move into four, we're going to be focusing more on Samuel and Caitlin. Uh, so, I mean, there's only so much you can do in a comic. So you've got to focus on something. Yeah, and, if, you know, when things are over, maybe you do a one-off special focused on him or something like that, you know, because that, that could be kind of fun. But it's, uh, you know, I mean, I really like the story because of, you know, it's the you know, 19th century Ghostbusters, X-Files. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, and with steampunk, it's just cool. It's just totally cool and, you know, the, you know, or all goes bad type of thing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, I am in the process of rewriting uh, a new novella okay. which is called The Demons of Liberty Row. And it is how Samuel and Granville first meet. And how essentially they become partners. And you get a look at you get a real look at Granville's world and I've invented a sister for him. And, uh, but they, the, the, the Negro section of Boston is called Liberty row. And that's where he lives with his sister and his niece. And he has his workshop and workshops and 
Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a story of the demons of Liberty Row, and that's uh, literal and figurative <laughs> demons. I, I like it. I like it. That's, that's cool. That is- so it's, it's with some beta readers right now. Then I got to rewrite it. Then it has to go to the editor. Uh, it is one of the uh, rewards on the Kickstarter. Now, you, now, hats off to you on the Kickstarter because you have what percentage are you at for funding, and and when's uh, support for it end? We are at, I believe, two hundred eighteen percent funded, and we end on this Friday, February twenty first, at twelve thirty. Pacific Standard Time. So we are less than 48 hours away of ending. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm about done. (laughs) It's, it's a lot of work. It's a tremendous amount of work. You know, I know for my brother's multiple Kickstarter projects that he's done it, you know, it it is a campaign. It's like, it's like an election for, you know, and and because you live it daily with tweeting about it and the rewards and, you know, talking it up, and it's something that you do, you know, there's all the build-up time and then everything else, so I appreciate uh, everything that you've gone through for, you know, a couple months and getting ready for this. Yeah, it's critical, all the preparation ahead of time, that is absolutely critical, and getting the video done and, and making sure everything looks right and getting your own little headshot video done. And for those of us whose face doesn't show up under lights, you got to go do get hair and makeup done. So just so you look presentable to the outside world and you have to, it's just, it's part of the gig. Yeah. It's, I, I liked your video. I thought it was great. And so that was good. It was fantastic. And it was great to see that, you know, you guys nailed the goal so quickly and you've just been, you know, swinging for the fences ever since. It's fantastic. Yeah, we've we've been having a lot of fun with it, and I was uh, really have to be part of the um, what was called Steampunk Hands Across the World, which was what the Granville uh, blog was about. It was part of that event. It was a month-long event that was organized by uh, the Airship Ambassador. It's called airshipambassador.com. Kevin Style, who runs that, decided to do that. And literally all month long, we've had art and literature and blogs coming in. It's on Facebook from all over the world, from every, every culture you can imagine that adds, you know, st- steampunk this or historical tidbits that or something. And it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, that's so cool. Plus, it'd just be kind of neat to be the captain of an airship. You know, you get the uniform. Oh, wow. <laughs> get you, that's was, what those goggles are for, you know? Awesome. You know, it's... I, I, I recently read about, you know, the one Zeppelin or blimp engagement during World War II mm-hmm. where a U.S. Navy, you know, a reconnaissance blimp engaged a U-boat. Wow. Yeah. I I was concerned about that. Yeah, and I saw it on IO9 and then did a little digging. But, you know, our our surveillance force was supposed to just go out looking for submarines and then radio it in and not engage them because they're big, slow-moving targets. Yes. Well, 
they, they spot the U-boat, they call it in, and they realize that, you know, the U-boat's going to get to this tanker before, you know, others can get there. So they do their high-speed 17-mile-per-hour attack on the U-boat. <laughs> They, they do get a few licks in, uh, but they do get shot down in the process. But, you know, you, you know it's, just, it's just like, it's my kind of crazy. I mean, God bless. I mean, how American is that? It's like, yeah, we are totally going to get our heads handed to us, but we're going to go in anyway because it's the right thing to do. It's like, that's America. I mean, it's God bless well, them. Well, clearly, it sounds like it was just to slow them down enough to allow the big guns to show up to help. It was just a delay tactic, probably. Yeah, there was a little of that, and there was probably, you know, honor at stake of, do we really want to sit back and watch the, watch this U-boat kill these guys, or are we at least going to make a stand? And they chose to make a stand. And uh, they lost one guy, and so out of the crew, uh, who, who drowned. But the others were uh, rescued after a day at sea. But it That's was actually the, pretty good that they only, I would figure they would lose all hands, but... That's amazing that they only lost one guy. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, and and I grew up here in you know in the Bay Area in the South Bay specifically in the shadow of Moffett Field, mm-hmm. where we have Hangar One, which was you know the you know hangar for the USS Macon, and then we had two other very big uh, you know dirigible hangars as well. And I'm blanking on the names for that we had in there, but you know. In my childhood, those were full of P3s chasing Russian submarines. Uh, but, you know, it's just, I mean, looking at those old pictures of the thing, you know, of, of those airships, uh, mm-hmm. just, just beautiful. And and that's part of the mystique of steampunk and, and what you're doing is being able to see that come to life in a totally different way. Um, that's just cool. Yeah, I will be writing a novella at some point in the future about... Uh, what's called the House Wars, which is my version of the Civil War. Okay. Which happens before the start of the comic. Okay. Like 30, 35 years before the start of the comic. And there will be, it's essential, the story will, since it's just a novella, will focus on an air battle between airships. And that's it. And the crew that mans one of these airships. So I'm actually looking forward to writing that. It's just finding the time because I have all these other things I have to do before I get there. <laughs> hey, bills, work, yeah. It's, yeah, I, I understand that the challenge of doing blog posts is one thing. Writing a full-blown comic or a novella, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's more than I do. So I, I admire your ethics and being able to, to get that much work done. Thank you. Perfect. Well, listen, where can uh, people find out more about BMS and your Kickstarter project and, and everything else? They can, uh, well, number one, they can go to the website at www.bostonmetaphysicalsociety.com or they can, and there's a, a widget there they can click right through to the Kickstarter or they can go to kickstarter.com, uh, type in Boston Metaphysical or just go to the comics and search through there and they should find it pretty easily. And particularly if they search by end date, since we're coming up, we'll be right on that first page since we only have about, I guess, 43 hours to go at this point. But we do plan on celebrating Friday night when this is over. Yay. 
I pop that champagne. You, you've earned it. So it's uh, well, we're going out for we didn't have time to go out for Valentine's Day, so it's going to be post Valentine's, post Kickstarter celebration, and it's just going to be nice. That's awesome. It's the the anniversary of John Quincy Adams having a stroke on the floor of the House of Representatives in 1848. And Thank you for like ruining my. <laughs> 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 I want to think about what a cheesecake factory is. John Quincy Adams writhing on the floor of the, our Congress. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't die that day. It took two more days. So you're clear there. But it was. Oh well, that's better. And then I can see him like he's. In agony for two days after that. Great. But he's a man from Massachusetts. You know, he fits well into the hero story. And he rose and voted in opposition to a resolution honoring those who had fought in the Mexican-American War because everyone in the North saw it as nothing but a power grab for the slaveholding states. So uh, it's actually, again, being the lawyer, I always found it really heroic because if I'm going to go out, I prefer going out fighting for something like that. It's it's about as cool as death as a lawyer can have. <laughs> uh, it, which might sound really dark in comparison if that's what I think. But yes, that's... Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a little dark, but uh, it's okay. <laughs> so you're going to be a big wow, right? Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. And uh, looking forward... Well, I will be there in June. Okay. It's, um, that's, isn't that the week before Memorial Day? Is it? I have to look. Yeah, I have a whole schedule, but yeah, I'll be at, for those of you who are watching, who are go to Comic-Cons, I will be at Emerald City, WonderCon, uh, Long Beach Comic Expo, uh, Phoenix uh, Comic Expo, uh, Amazing Las Vegas, the Gaslight Gathering in San Diego, which is a steampunk convention, which I'll also be a panelist there. Uh, so I'm going to be all over the place. Well, you know, I do have my derby, so, you know, oh. uh, I also do have the campaign hat, so I, I could break one of these out and, and go support. So well, you need to add goggles to those. I, uh, you know, it's, I'll, I'll see what I can do to order some, but yeah, it's, uh, Amazon, um, Amazon. And, uh, there's the, was it the gentleman's emporium has some cool stuff. They have some beautiful things there. And also, if on Facebook, you can check out some of the steampunk groups and there's some wonderful makers that one of, they make one of a kind things. So you'll have something unique. I mean, that's one nice thing about uh, working with the steampunk makers is everything is handmade. Uh, you're not going to get it anywhere else. And it's usually well done. Like Dr. Dr. Brassy, also known as Kim, uh, who did the owl locket. I don't know if you remember, but I think I was wearing a, uh, a little top hat brooch at the Geeky Awards. Yeah. She did that. And also the necklace I wore there, she also did. Very cool. Yeah, it's, I, you know, that, was, that was a cool outfit you had on. Um, your husband had on some cool swag, too, uh, that <laughs> yes, night. Yes, he had a... He, that is a gorgeous vest, which I'll do a little plug here. Uh, we got that at Clockwork Couture in Burbank. And that is a wonderful steampunk store. Uh, I, I saw the video with Felicia Day there. And yeah. uh, that yeah. was 
they got some cool stuff. Lots of cool stuff. They do. They do. And uh, Donna, who runs it, um, is she and our friends, and she's been a terrific supporter of the comic. Uh, help me out when she can. In fact, one of the re incentives is a Boston Metaphysical tea, black tea blend, and I'm working with her to, uh, to blend the tea. So she and I are working hand-in-hand and hand putting that together. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you at Big Wow, and I'm going to uh, – I reached out to the guys who put on WonderCon down in Anaheim, and hopefully they'll, they'll let me do a panel there. So I, I proposed a few ideas to them, so we'll see if that works out. Uh, but I would love to do a speaking event at one of the cons, and that's the one that I'm going to make the, make the pitch at and see if they go for it. Okay. So. Well, I, I will be there too. <laughs> Work in the table, as you know. All too well. We've, we've all played Booth Babe at one point in our lives. I'm just used to it at legal conventions as opposed to comic cons. So, um, but you've actually seen my brother at a couple of them now. Yes. Yes, we're like we're like this now. <laughs> we're buddies. Yeah, it's, yeah we're he was buddies. just a Samuel T. as a you know uh, you know as as Samuel T. Clemens, and uh, you know I was about to say Samuel T. Twain, but no, Mark Twain, Samuel T. Uh, Clemens, and uh, he looks yeah. great as Samuel Clemens. He really pulls that off well. Well, for his Kickstarter campaign, he didn't shave or you know get a haircut for a couple months as they film things in sequence and oh, okay. and so he shaved but still had the crazy hair uh -huh. and, and did that for that that show so which was he did a really good job <laughs> so very good job well listen uh you know i'll post uh you know all the different links down below so people can can also find you but uh really you know so happy that the kickstarter campaign has been successful and really looking forward to seeing, you know, the next uh, three issues of, of BMS. And again, you know, wishing nothing but success in the months to come. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. You, anytime. You take care and we'll see you very soon. Okay. Thank you.